The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. On Monday, January 22nd, RTI International hosted a research symposium on Oregon's Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. Let's start our coverage with opening remarks from Dr. Ricky Blutenthal, Associate Dean for Social Justice and Professor at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. I'm going to provide uh, brief opening remarks, um, and I think it, there'll be a combination of, like, I have two goals. So I want to appreciate what uh, you all are trying to accomplish with Measure 110. Uh, I think it's really important what you're up to, uh, and there's a lot for the rest of us to learn from you about what you're up to. Uh, And then I just want to make a point at the end about uh, the key key take home for me always with these kinds of things is that this is about people uh, and trying to support their dignity and well-being. So uh, let me get the, let me just get started then. So I think the important context for all of this work uh, is that we've spent a lot of time digging a really big hole for a lot of people without a whole lot of evidence of it uh, achieving those two goals I identified of supporting human dignity and well-being. So, you know, beginning in the uh, 80s, we began arresting a whole lot of people for low-level possession of illicit substances. We're really good at it. We did it comprehensively in all kinds of different settings, urban, rural, suburban. Um, we uh, you know, it had a particular focus and consequence for people of color that was negative. So as an example, I lived in Washington, D.C. from 1986 to 1988 at the height of the, crack, the so-called crack epidemic. And at the time, they were arresting one in six African-American men who lived in D.C. every year and putting them in jail. Uh, for illicit possession. Uh, It didn't make crack go away. Uh, It didn't build up communities. It didn't help people go to college. It didn't help parents raise their children. It didn't help families stay together. So we spent a lot of time going in the wrong direction. Um, And I do think Measure 10 has to be understood in that context. It's It's a big change. You know, when you do something for 50, 60 years, you're doing it because it feels right to you. And it's probably pretty easy to do. So when you're trying to do something that's different, you know, I think you have to underline that, that that's a big change. And humans are not good at behavior change. Trust me, I've spent the 30 years trying to change myself and I've only had modest success. So you've got that problem. You know, you have this other issue about the racial disparities that have come out of that, right? So I'm African-American. It's not been good for us, right? It's not helped us realize our potential. It's not healed our families or individuals. It's not resulted in people being better in any way that's quantifiable that I'm aware of, all right? But there are alternatives, right? Um, You don't have to put someone in a cell if they're using drugs that you don't like. We have to make, you can make different choices. And I think that's really an important thing to keep in mind because just putting them in jail seems like, okay, well, the problem is sort of away somewhere else and maybe they'll figure it out, maybe they won't. But there's also all of these other consequences. So in the, I've been sort of doing this work uh, for over 30 years now. 
And when I started doing this work in the Bay Area in the early 90s, you know, the big problem was HIV, which was a big problem. People were dying from HIV then. Um, it was, it felt like you were in combat. Like we're really, we're the only thing that stands between us and a lot of people dying. Um, in that 30 years, we've created a whole bunch of other problems too now though, right? So overdose mortality death crisis is making AIDS look like, you know, uh, a little brother, right? It's killed more people than HIV AIDS did. Uh, and it continues to kill more people and it kills them across a broad swath of the society. So at least in the United States, HIV was really concentrated in three or four specific kinds of groups. You know, we're all at risk in some respect for overdose. We're at risk because we have a family member who uses opiates or a, a good friend or a former lover. Um, and we're, it's not geographically limited. So this isn't a city problem, it isn't a suburban problem, it isn't a rural problem, it's all of our problems. Um, and if we continue to pursue strategies that don't work, we will continue, continue to lose people who are important to us. Uh, I like to show the slide in the middle uh, from California. Uh, and so it's a little hard to see, so sorry about that. But basically, the, the history of hepatitis C in this country had been a single uh, like camel hump. Right. So there are people who had hepatitis C. They were generally folks who came of age in the 60s and 70s when injection drug use became popular in the United States, to the extent that it was. Uh, and that created that first uh, hump. And then we have a second one of people born since 1980. Right. And that reflects the prescription opiate uh, uh, issue and then the transition into injection drug use. So we've created a new problem. Right, so we have another cohort of people who are going to have this long-acting illness that might bedevil them if they don't get it treated. And then another thing that we don't talk about so much is that because the prescription opiate stuff led to this injection drug use problem, we had a lot more injection drug users, uh, and those folks get bacterial infections, uh, and they can be very deadly. So infective endocarditis, sepsis, blood poisoning, and uh, that's just reporting on a one hospitalization study where you know they're expensive to treat and they have uh, pretty serious consequences for people's health. The other thing is, is that we kind of conquered HIV, uh, at least for people who use drugs, uh, but now this sort of constellation of economic inequality, homelessness, inadequate implementation of harm reduction services has led to sort of these HIV outbreaks, including one in Portland. So, um, you know, we've pursued a strategy that hasn't uh, in terms of incarceration that hasn't resulted in great results. We have these alternatives, but I think part of the lesson that you're here today is that we've got to spend more time implementing them. And so this is sort of just a bit, just a quick like summary. I'm gonna to have to put my glasses on of the sort of difference. So, you know, there's a lot of empirical work in growing about the sort of failures of incarceration to sort of deliver the safety for communities or the health outcomes for people that we would want. We, it's well known that incarcerating someone increases once it, upon a release, they're at elevated risk for overdose death. There's also lots of overdoses that happen in incarcerated settings. Uh, when someone's incarcerated, what are they not doing? You know, they're not working, they're not building positive social relations, they're not educating themselves, they're not raising their children. And so they end up unhoused and difficult uh, to support themselves, right? So we're sort of digging them a bigger hole. Uh, there's a lot of interest in sort of coercing people into treatment. 
I get it. It kind of makes sense. But let me tell you, I've talked to tens of thousands of people who use all kinds of drugs, and none of them have ever needed me to tell them that they need to go to drug treatment. What we, what we do need to do is make treatment available for the people who are ready for it. And we've never done that in my 30 years of observation. Um, I, I'd love for us to do that. There are things that we can do to make that happen. But coercing people, again, it seems like it makes sense. It isn't part of a reasonable solution to getting people into recovery. On the other hand, we have marvelously effective biomedical interventions for opiate use disorder in particular. Um, so we have three different classes of drugs. Um, there's contingency management. It has outstanding results as a, a treatment option for people who are using methamphetamines. And then, of course, we have the arm reduction history. Um, so we need to continue investing in that. And of course, oops, sorry. All right, we're good. Um, and of course, one of that, the, you know, it's important to realize is that we just haven't done that. So this is just showing you the second half of that. You can see that at the top is the needs for treatment. And at the bottom is people getting treatment. So that's an enormous gap. Uh, that we need to fill. And I think if we filled it, we would see a lot of the other things that trouble us about the economic inequality in our society, the public substance use, the homelessness, begin to go away if people have care. Uh, but we have to build that out. And it's not easy. It's not easy. It's hard to do, but it's worth doing. Um, and then I just want to show you, uh, just to you to this article. So, you know, there's these great mathematical modelers I love them because I don't understand what they're doing, but people listen to them. So let's, uh, let's just accept the magic. Um, they looked at six different cities around, you know, can we get to zero with HIV, uh, where there's long history of investing in these things. And they looked at multiple strategies, so treatment, um, uh, syringe services, overdose prevention sites, what have you. And basically no one's getting close to fully implementing it anywhere. Right. The closest was, was Seattle um, and they're still um, and that's just for syringes. That's not even that's not for the medication for opiate use disorder. So, you know, part of my message is it takes time to build out these systems um, and we need to take the time to do it and we need to invest the money to do it so we can have an alternative um, that offers actually some real hope for supporting human dignity and well-being. Um, you know, the, the features, I don't need to tell you all about the features about uh, uh, um, Measure 110 um, and Senate Bill 755, but I think it's going in the right direction. Um, and so let me just sort of end with this, this uh, sort of observation. Look, you know, this is hard to do. It's, it's a heavy lift and you're just starting. You're just starting. You don't do anything for 50 years and then the next day you stop. So, and let's use an example. You know, the United States was, well, still is, but really was uh, legally, res res you know, racially segregated, right? That happened, that was, that it was existence of the country for much of its history. In 1963, 1964, Civil Rights Act allowed for voting, 64 allowed for public accommodations, right? So then did we all start living together? No, right? <laughs> In fact, in places like the, in many places in the South, they closed their public pools rather than have black and white children swim together, right? So we're still working on that project 80 years later, right? That doesn't mean we should stop, right? 
there's uh, there people are there are hopefully fewer people running around thinking that separations of the races is the way that we really actually want to live our lives it takes time um, so you're going to have a chance um, to hear from people who've begun the early work of looking at uh, these different things as, as dr carl pointed out this comprehensive and the sort of issues that we would all want to have see addressed in an evaluation of the project um, and as you listen to these, I want you to listen carefully to the data, but I also want you to remember that the people represented in these data have the same rights to human dignity and well-being that we all do, and that we want a society where we all have an opportunity to be our best selves. And perhaps Measure 110 is one way for us to get there. That was Dr. Ricky Bluthenthal, Associate Dean for Social Justice and Professor at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, delivering opening remarks at the 2024 Measure 110 Research Symposium. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Now let's hear closing remarks and an overview of the symposium proceedings from Dr. Alex Crawl, an epidemiologist and a distinguished fellow, Behavioral Health and Criminal Justice at RTI International. He's introduced by Dr. Bluthenthal. So I mentioned in my talk at the beginning that I've been doing this work for 30 some odd years. And at no point did we have an adequate system of care and treatment for people who were not in prison or not in the hospital or not in treatment. And, and I, in some ways that's what measure 11, 110 is really, that's the innovation, right? I mean, this core sort of, you know, the sort of criminalization sort of is happening or not happening. But what hasn't happened is the care system, and that's what you're trying to do. And so I would hold on tight to that possibility because that's really going to make a bigger difference in the long run in terms of the lives of people who use drugs, their family, friends, and the people that love them. So thank you for allowing me to uh, editorialize at the end. Um, all right, so let me uh, introduce Alex Kral. He's sort of been the uh, the architect of all of the a lot of the research you've seen here today. and has the opportunity to provide some closing remarks. Thank you very much, yes. Um, just uh, provide a little bit of a summary of what we've learned today. It's been a lot, it's been a long day, it's been a great day, been a lot of amazing presenters, um, great questions, I think tough questions, um, both online and uh, here in person. And I think that's just, uh, you know, I think at one point we had, I think, 440 people online at the same time. And there's, there's a, a, a clearly um, there's a large interest in this topic. It's an important topic. It's because everybody really cares. And I think that's something whether you're happy or unhappy with what's happening. Um, the important part is, is really the engagement and everyone is, is really doing that. So I just want to point that out uh, to begin with. And, and really what the goal for this was, was to was to provide um, to provide some of the the research that we do know to be part of, of the narrative of what's going on and, and to be part of the next legislative session, that's why we did this in January now, um, was because we wanted um, the research to be part of what uh, helps to, to form the, the decisions uh, of the legislative bodies uh, you know, com coming, up, um, coming up now in February. Um, and so as, you know, as, as Ricky talked about at the beginning, and, and, and I think um, we, you know, I think you've, you've heard this uh, throughout the day. I mean, after five decades of treating substance use disorders um, as primarily a criminal and legal problem, Oregon voters decided to prioritize public health approach. Um, I, I think um, 
you know, by the law was enacted three years ago, implementation is is is, is taking longer, right? Um, it, it, it took about a year and a half to get all the funding out um, for good reasons, uh, and and um, you know, and it's also taking time for the criminal legal system um, to figure out how to reorient their work. Really, is what we're talking about here. Um, with respect to drugs and police and, and, and people who use drugs. I mean, they've been doing it one way for 50 years. You don't just sort of have a law and all of a sudden that. In fact, some of the interviews that Hope was talking about that we did with, with police, uh, you know, early on two years ago, year and a half ago, you know, they said well, we, we didn't get any uh, advice about what to do all of a sudden. Like February 1 happened and we had no clue what we were supposed to do. Um, and so it, it takes time uh, to, do, to, to, to do that. Um, and so I think that's um, both of those are it's going to take more time um, to, to, to do that. Um, and evaluating such a novel law represents just huge institutional changes, right? Um, in, in terms of things we've talked about, um, evaluations are lacking, uh, you know, from the first 18 months are lacking the housing and treatment harm reduction part. We've talked about this. Um, Measure 110 was was not the only substantial event in the early 2020s. We've, we've, we've heard a lot about that. Uh, COVID, uh, shelter in place, uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, and ensuing public sentiment towards law enforcement. Um, uh, we've heard a lot about that. Um, introduction of fentanyl to the unregulated unre- uh, uh, drug supply and, and, ri- and rising housing market and, and, and uh, um, uh, costs and, and shortage in affordable housing. I mean, these, these are all happening at the same time. It's tough to tease all of this out. Um, evaluations from the secondary sources of data are, are limited by long delays until those data are available. Um, you know, like the overdose mortality, it, take, it takes like a year to get that. We've talked about that. Um, and um, there have only been a few primary data collection efforts, and we've been we've been you know fortunate to be be funded by Arnold Ventures to do to do some of those. But but some of those are limited as well in the sense that they don't we didn't have pre data for that uh, because this is money they gave us after after M110 was 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 conducted. So we couldn't sort of do a pre post there. And, and in some ways, I, I think you know we're hoping here you know if there's some sort of recriminalizing element here, then well then I guess we'll be able to study that. Well, we'll, we'll we, we've got money for two more years to studies and we'll be doing that so i guess we could be coming back here two years from now and letting you know exactly how it's going with the recriminalization if that's what's uh, what's going to happen um you know so that's that's something on the uh, potentially on the horizon here um um so thinking about the summary really of panel one quickly here um, while overdose mortality has dramatically increased in, in Oregon from 2020 to the present, um, this is consistent with national and regional trends, uh, and, and which are primarily really um, impacted by the introduction of fentanyl into uh, the unregulated, uh, unregulated drug supply. Um, you know, during the early period uh, when access to housing and treatment and harm reduction was hasn't hadn't yet been ramped up um measure 110 did uh did not have any significant positive or negative in, impacts uh, on overdose uh, mortality in oregon and uh you know we'll have to see how that goes now that there there is that hopefully we can we'll see positive things but i also um you know we are worried about you know continuing things going up if it, if it looks like it did in other parts of the country those those numbers could keep going up i hate to say we did learn from 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 Morgan's uh, presentation there that people who use drugs are accessing naloxone through M110 funded syringe services program and are saving many many lives. Uh, this is really really important, and they are they are the first responders. That they're the by far more often a first responder than 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 any of the more expensive systems, uh, and really they're they're like working for free doing this doing this. Uh, 
and and it's hard it's hard work whether it's whether it's the law enforcement uh, that was and, and the doctor talked about in this last session you know it's 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 that's hard work they're all doing um and it's it's uh, it's impactful emotionally on them as well and i think some of the support that they might need uh is important to think about from from what we're learning today as well we been thinking about um, summarizing the some, uh, substance use disorder services panel uh, before lunch. Um, you know, during the first full year of M110 funding, programs did quickly uh, ramp up service um, services for screening, assessments, treatment, peer support services, harm reduction, housing, and supported uh, employment. We learned uh, quite a lot from that. Um, we're we're going to have we have a one pager. It's well, it's a two pager. Both both sides. Um, and oh, we've got uh, <laughs> we've got Ma, uh, Monica show, showing us that. But but um, you can have that on the way out. We've got some um, QR codes there, and so you actually a QR code gets you right to that uh, to that um, uh, dashboard that that she uh, she talked about. So it should be easy for you to look at those data from the OHA re related to that. Um, at the time N110 was enacted. Uh, Oregon did not have a large certified workforce in peer su uh, support services for substance use disorder treatment, and you can't just ramp. I mean, can't just ramp it up really quickly. Um, it, it has done that. I think we shown we saw from Dr. Hoover's uh, um, presentation that 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 it did, it has ramped it up. But you also need support for that. It's hard work to do. Then you, I mean, we heard about you know positions not not uh, not uh, being filled yet, or or you know, and 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 some of the low wages involved. With that, that these these are some of the things that need to happen um, to to really fully um, to implement that. Um, you know, um, the challenges of the peer work are, are big, right? I mean, needing needing to manage the stress, um, also you know, limited access for them to actually provide to link people to uh, uh, withdrawal management, residential treatment services, these kinds of things that people want. They, they can't link it if it doesn't exist either, right? And so we, we need more treatment access uh, in general. Thinking about the third, uh, the third panel on housing, harm reduction, and family services, while many in Oregon blame 110 for increases in homelessness, there are so many other important uh, leading uh, forces that are leading to homelessness, including rising rents and house costs, less employment opportunities in the informal sector, COVID shifting people to working at home, decline in appetite for shopping in brick and mortar locations, uh, rising income disparities. There's a lot of things going on at the same time right now that's really making that a difficult thing. We did learn from from, from Dr. Chung that, that M110 did not attract large numbers of people to move to Oakland to start using drugs in Oakland. In, 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 I mean, not Oakland, but Oregon. <laughs> Oregon. It's getting late. It's been a long day. It, probably not in Oakland either. Um, many people who use drugs um, are experiencing home um, houselessness, but most of whom have, have, have sought housing, but only minority are getting housing still. There's still a big gap in what we need uh, there. And we learned um, from, uh, from Jude Leahy that harm reduction organizations have delivered over 370,000 doses of naloxone to people who use drugs. 370,000, that's unbelievable amount. Um, that's really important, especially in rural areas. Um, this is a really important thing that's been happening um, in, in, in the state for that, these last few years. Um, and um, Dr. Chalfi talked about, um, you know, this, this one in 10 birthing people have a substance use disorder. I mean, I, I don't know if you all knew that data before, but 
that that is a sobering fact in and of itself um and and um and many of them seek avoid seeking care because they're worried uh, about being punished or their kids being going to be you know be taken away uh you know um and and that leads to to worse health outcomes for for both the mothers and and the and the children um this last panel on law enforcement is a uh, great panel with diverse type of data, both secondary analyses and uh, both quantitative primary data collection, qualitative, a lot of different things uh, going on there. Um, you know, what we learned was that officer stops, uh, possession of controlled substance arrests, uh, drug court enrollment were all declining prior to 110. I heard that from Dr. Henderson. Um, when compared to other states, there's no significant change in overall arrests. There's no changes in arrests for violent crimes, no changes in non-drug-related uh, arrests in Oregon after 110. I mean, this is a really important piece we're seeing both in the arrest data, but also in, the, in, in some of the call for service data that, that, that Dr. Wire um, uh, presented on as well. So both, both um, um, Mr. Davis and, 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 um, and, and um, Mr. Wire both, both talked about this as compared to eight cities in California, Idaho, and Washington. There was no change in calling 911 for police in, 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 in uh, Portland or, and Eugene after, after um, M110. So over, over two years after M110 was enacted, three quarters of people who use drugs, they're still being stopped by police. I think it was in a median of three times a year. Is that I, I, from, from Dr. Smiley McDonald's? I mean, that, they're still heavily policed. Um, whether it's drug related or not, that's a huge presence in their lives. Think about that. Three quarters of them are, 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 are policed uh, in, in that way. Um, no significant differences in being stopped by race and ethnicity, though. So maybe there are some gains, as, as, she, as she talked about there, in terms of some of the disparities that, that were part and parcel of why Oregonians did vote for this, for this, uh, this uh, law uh, three, three years ago, which is over three years ago now. Um, people who use drugs were hopeful. M110 uh, would bring fewer law enforcement interactions. Uh, uh, Dr. Good uh, spoke about this. Less, less uh, time in jail, a uh, shift towards policing crimes uh, for violent offices, uh, offenses and, and larger scale drug dis distribution rather than just simple use or, or small level possession. That, that these were some of the hopes that, that people who use drugs were having for this. Um, they're concerned. You know, they, they are not, you know, everyone sees them as the perpetrators of violence, but they, believe you me, they are more uh, receiving at the receiving end of violence than they are perpetrating uh, violence. And that's that's a big piece uh, out there as well. So I think, that, you know, they, they're actually would like police to be dealing with that particular issue rather than 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 their drug use. So in closing here, um, yeah, it, it is, as, as a gentleman over here said, it, it is too early to determine whether M110 has succeeded or not. It's not, it's not realistic. I mean, we were even, we, last night we were having dinner across the way and the waiter uh, talked to the waiter and he's, oh, why are you here? I'm here for this symposium. And it's now, oh, M110, what was that again? Oh, it's drug, you know, drug, drug decrim. He's like, well, how could you be doing evaluation on that? I mean, wasn't it just a couple of years ago? You know, even he said that he said that's going to take a, a generation to figure that out. Sort of what he said. Um, you know, I, I, it, it, I think we all want, and especially if you're a legislator, here's a big thing that came out. We want to know today, like tomorrow, what is it? What happened? But but the data isn't there yet. I, I think the sky didn't fall, right? That I think we know. We we, we can all these data you've seen today. The sky did not fall. Uh, and, and so it's not, it's M110 has not made things worse. 
It hasn't yet had the gains probably we'd like to see from, from that we wanted to see uh, three years ago, but that will take some time to do. And, and I, think, I think we will see that, uh, you know, with, with some more time. Um, you know, um, M110 has not caused more overdose deaths compared to other Western states uh, now that it's full, fully implemented. It's important to see if it can hopefully reduce, hopefully we can see a downswing there. Uh, it hasn't led to more crime, uh, 911 calls, as, as many fear, as many, many say, but the data do not show, do not show that out. Um, and, and we do have decades of data showing us that, that a return to treating drug use disorder primarily as a criminal and legal issue um, will lead to more drug use, more potent drugs, um, and increasing physical and mental harms uh, among those um, associated with, 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 with drug use. I, I think we do know that's, that, that that is what would happen. We, we've, we've got 50 years of it uh, to, to, to show that. That was Dr. Alex Crawl, an epidemiologist at RTI International, delivering closing remarks January 22nd at the Research Symposium on Measure 110. For now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is for Doug the Drug McVeigh Truth Network. So this is Doug McVeigh so asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the Century of Lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy. Thank you.